Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another Coleman Had a Dream podcast. I am here as ever with Ruth. Hello, Ruth. How are you? Hi. All right. Thanks. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. It is bizarrely after drinking on my balcony this week when the games were on. It is now snowing outside my house at the moment, so it's a little bit of a surreal afternoon, to be honest. It's not quite what I would call bank holiday weather. All right. Well, we've we've just got lovely blue skies, but it's freezing cold. So you know, the world is upside down in a whole number of ways. <laughs> in every conceivable way. Have you had a, Have you had a busy week to do? Enjoy the games. Well, obviously enjoyed the enjoyed the games. Um, it's 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 all a bit strange watching it. I mean, I'm sure everybody can relate to this, the whole process of watching games in isolation. It's just I still haven't got used to it. You'd think twelve months in that we'd have found almost found like a new normal but we haven't which I think is really interesting I think it it kind of demonstrates um just how out of step we are and how just how weird this whole process is I think it's I think it's interesting that we're we're 12 months in when we're we still don't quite know what to do with it no, I do know what you mean. That I'm gonna. We were just talking about this off air, which is my least favorite thing to say. But um, we we've had a really interesting picture talking about you know how people get together. We've had an interesting question um, from someone called John Smith. I don't know if that's your actual name, John. Um, as fans likely can't go to the Euros, what do fans want to see more of content-wise? And I thought that was a really interesting question because it obviously. Um, implies that people do want more uh well, not particularly from us probably that's the last thing people want but um i, I think that it, it, it goes to demonstrate there is something there so we're really kind of intrigued um as to what you think about this we want to see if we can set up some kind of google form or something like that um and see if we can put together a, like a, a what fans want page um, through Common Had a Dream, obviously, but also through maybe some of the other sites and pages we work with to see if we can kind of come together and find out what Welsh fans want in the build-up to their Euros. Um, because obviously there's a chance that none of us are actually going to be able to go to the games, which is a depressing thought. But um, I think it's worth kind of putting that out there. So if you're interested in in kind of giving us suggestions for what fans want uh, in the build-up to the Euros or there's anything extra you think we could do, then we would absolutely love to hear that. There's, we're going to kind of formalise something and set up some kind of uh, contributions page or something like that soon so that if you are interested in kind of passing on your thoughts, we would uh, we would want to do that. So, yeah, thank you, John Smith, for that question. That was a really interesting one. And it, as you said, Ruth, it is it's, it's still taking some getting used to, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's it's weird. You'd have, you'd have thought we'd have sort of evolved, like I said, evolved some kind of norm. But I think I think it shows how intrinsic this is, the the camaraderie around the games, how intrinsic this that is to the experience. That that being part of the process in the way we are at the moment still feels wrong. Yeah, I know what you mean. It is very weird. Um, so to look at the game itself. So today, by the way, sorry, there's another cracking introduction. Um, we are going to obviously talk about the Czech Republic game. We're also going to talk about the Wales women's team. They have a camp where they play Canada and Denmark, and that's also against... Uh, it's also Gemma Granger's first games in charge of Wales. I went to one of the press conferences in the week, which is very interesting, so I thought we'd mention that as well. Um, we're obviously going to start and talk about the Czech Republic game. The first question... Uh, that I wanted to bring up was a lineup. Really, um, were you happy with the lineup, Ruth? Did you think it should have been anything different, or was what you what kind of came out pretty much what you expected? I think there's a there's a kind of difference between what I expected 
and what I'd hoped for, as it were. Yeah. I would rather have seen Hennessy in goal, but I can't say I was surprised to see Ward, particularly, I think you mentioned in the last podcast when he wasn't involved at all in the Mexico game. I think that was a kind of signpost to his involvement. Again, I was unsettled by Nico being in that sort of left wing back role. Um, I probably would have gone for Cabango over Mepham, but I can't. I don't think you can say any of them are surprises. Um, I think fundamentally, my I suppose that what the thing I was perhaps most disappointed by was more not playing. Yeah. Because I still I still feel like, well, statistically, we are scoring more goals when he's on the field. You know, we've scored um, 16 goals since he started playing uh, back in the autumn of 2019. And he's been on the field for 13 of them. That's a great so, start. So we've only scored three goals when he's not there. And you and you think, okay, well, you know, how much of how much of the, that window has he not played? Well, he's played two thirds. If you look at it as minutes, he's played two thirds of the time in in across those games. Right. So in sixteen goals, you'd expect him just on average to have been on the field for about ten of them. Yeah, but he's been but he's been on the field for thirteen of them. So he's having some sort of positive impact in our ability to score goals directly and indirectly. And I think in a game that you know you've got to win, I think I'm disappointed to see us not going on the, f- the front foot to score goals. Yeah, I mean, Moore was the big one for me. I would have agreed with you on the Ward and Mepham decisions, but I think, and, and Nico Williams to an extent, but I think I've said this before, I don't think the decision, they're that much better or worse and it, it ends up making fundamentally that big difference on the outcome. It could do, and I did blame Ward for the for some goalkeeping errors last time, and I kind of maintain that. So, uh, But with that, I don't think it is that big a deal. The big thing for me was the, the, the lineup and more not being there. For me, we either had to do one or the other. We either had to play four at the back and then five in midfield in some way, shape or form, whether it was a two and a three behind a striker um, or whatever. We kind of, uh, that was how I felt we we should have done that because of the way they play. Um, Equally, if we were going to play with the five up front, um, with the five at the back, sorry, which we did, then more definitely should play because without wishing to get kind of too tactical and technical, like I think what happens is when you're that sort of team, you can afford to sit back and let teams like Wales hit long balls at you. Because if the play comes in short, the way they were set up meant they could close a lot of those kind of short balls from midfield to attack down. And there's a bit of space there, but they are in complete control of that situation defensively in the same way that if they were hit balls long, they're sat deep enough that they can either deal with the balls or if they lose the balls, it, it lose the balls in the air, then everything again is in front of the, the Czech defence. And I think as a consequence of that, we were very, very predictable from the off. Because if Kiefer Moore starts that game, you can go longer to him 
and you can get people running off him. Equally, you, he can come short, pull pull the uh, midfield, uh, pull their defence up, sorry, and have people channeling in behind him. And as a consequence, because we didn't do that, it was very predictable. Because you can't hit long balls up to, to Harry Wilson and Gareth Bale. It just doesn't work. I mean, they, they were looking for Bale long every time. And he, he is good in the air, but he's not a hold-up man. It's not where you get the best out of him. Um, so I just thought we that was... I thought we'd try to football our way out of a position where... I don't think it was necessarily about how we played football on a technical level. I thought it was just as much about how much fight we put into the game as it was the the tactics. And I think because we got that one decision, in my view, wrong, it explained why I thought we had a really quite poor first half performance. Yeah, there's lots lots to discuss there. I think we ironically spent a lot of time hoofing it forward Bale seemed to be going to try and win headers left, right and centre. And as you said, he's not a bad header of the ball, but it's not it's just not a good way to use him. Yeah. Um, and there wasn't the support off him um, to kind of pick up the scraps from all of that. Ward's distribution was weird, to say to say the least. There was I, I, there was lots of times when he seemed to be. Well, it wasn't accurate distribution, but on the occasions he got it right, he was then aiming for one person with three defenders around them, yeah. which, which again, doesn't gain you anything. Um, they they obviously were far more adventurous and, and, and just took the game to us, particularly in the, in the first half. I think there were times when they had five or six pressing up the field. And um, um, we seem to have this weird space between um, Ampadu and Morel and the, and the defensive five, which when you think of the bodies that were there, you know, a notional defensive five and two defensive midfielders, you know, it's, it's kind of seven at the back almost. And yet we seemed horribly outnumbered and with and a lot of space between Ampadu and Morel and the, and the central the three central defenders. So there was something weird about how we were set up as well. I feel going back to what you were yeah. saying that, yeah. that there were, there were, it was congested at the back and yet what space there was always seemed to be available to the checks. I mean, I, and it, sorry, carry on. God, I was just going to say, just to chip into that. I, I said this when I was on the Welsh football fans thing the other day, they actually were really clever, I thought, in how they set up. They slightly changed the way that they had been playing. They had been playing like a 4-4-1-1 or just a 4-4-2. And what they did here was play basically a 4-5-1 or a 4-2-3-1 with the two wider players of the three kind of tucked in. And what it did, it almost kind of engulfed our midfield. So that every time we got on the ball, Morel... And Ampadu didn't really have anyone to pass to because everything in front of them was blocked off by the closing players. If they turned round, yes, they could kind of pass the ball backwards, which wasn't always the easiest option. But if they did, because of where everyone was, the only option was the long ball, which meant it kind of recycled for them. The biggest thing for me, which the fun, which frustrated me most throughout the whole game, and I realised we're being negative and we won, and we will get to positive stuff, I promise, but... Because of the wide players, the wing-backs should have made, in those instances, a four in midfield 
mm. and, and leave the three at the back. And what they did was sit too deep and they very rarely pressed up because I think they were afraid of leaving the spaces in behind them. Well, they didn't really want the spaces in behind them. They wanted that kind of space in the middle and we allowed them to have that. Yeah. So I think all they did was just look at our, how we played, adapted to it in a really intelligent way. And I think as a consequence of that, that really shut us down. And, you know, I've said this before, and if you've listened to this podcast, you know, I am far from a footballing genius. But I've, I've, I think I picked that up quite early and I think it was frustrating to me that there was nothing to be done about it. And I know it's not easy to change a formation 10 minutes into a football match. And I'm not suggesting for a minute that we, you know, we should have just abandoned shift and, you know, done what Jose does, bring three subs on at half time or after 20 minutes or whatever and start again because the score was nil nil. But it did have a big effect, I think, on how the first half panned out. Yeah, I mean, I think... As, as you were saying, we were we were playing effectively five two three, I suppose, weren't we? Yeah. And so, and so that as opposed to like a three four three, and so there was nothing going on in midfield because Morel and Ampadu were so outnumbered. Um, the and I agree with you. I think it was very frustrating the level or the lack of the level of adjustment to that, yeah. even if it was just encouraging <clears throat> Nico Williams and Connor Roberts to push up a bit, to be a bit wider, to create, as you say, some options from Ampadu and Morel. So it wasn't always just back to Mepham or back to Lawrence or Rodden. I think um, Wilson in particular ended up quite isolated yeah. uh, because what little distribution there was, was, was tending to go, down either flank, um, and we just we just seemed incredibly outnumbered yeah. in the key parts in the key parts of the field, really. Um, I mean, we we see all these things, and that, I think there's everything we've said is is right there and, and fair and relevant. I think the other thing to remember out of all of this, the flip side, is that we went in halftime at nil nil. They are a team who had held the best team in the world to a 1-1 draw they had just put six goals past Estonia I think the, the 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 other thing to take into account here is that we they are you know I think maybe a better side than we perhaps and by we I mean kind of everyone <laughs> rather than just you and I kind of gave them credit for and you know I think we maybe underestimated them a little bit from our side of things and you know they just were able to impose their will on the game and I do think we made that too easy for them but I do think equally they are still a very good team and they're not world beaters but they're still an organized efficient effective team and I think that the fact we got in nil nil at half time having been completely outplayed will really probably have frustrated them and we'll get to how they uh, vented their frustrations uh, in a moment. But I do think that we should kind of take that as a bonus. And I do also think that it's worth remembering that I think we probably had the best chance of the first half. That that cross from the left-hand side from Nico Williams from Gareth Bale, who absolutely has to score and has to do better. So, I, you know, the flip side to all of that is we still managed to grind out a situation where it was nil-nil at halftime and, and should have been one-nil to us. Yeah, I mean, it, it could, as you say, it could have been 1-0. I think one of my frustrations with the first half in particular was the the lack of kind of leadership on the field. Um, like, if you contrast it with the Mexico game, I've rather enjoyed listening to Guntz shouting, 
all night at everybody who was in about 30 feet of him. Yeah. But you could you could hear him all night helping the line in front of him. And I think he was, in fairness, he was very conscious of Johnny Williams in particular being like completely out of position and yeah. need and needing the assistance. But I I was disappointed in the Czech game that that kind of um, inexperience that we have across the back line in particular, you look at the number of caps they've got between them, they're a very young, new setup. And I was, I think I was disappointed that there wasn't the communication that there needed to be. There wasn't the sharing of information at the level that you'd heard at, at the Mexico game. And I do think that's something we need to need to address um, going forward. Yeah. I th- you know, like we, a lot of that is obviously experience. And, you know, yeah. I would, you know, Ben yeah. Davis would probably do a lot of that. He didn't play. Um, yeah. and, and I do think that there's a few other kind of mitigating factors. I don't think Danny Ward is the most you know, verbal of goalkeepers, whereas I think Wayne Hennessy is a lot more confident and comfortable doing that sort of thing, which which helps. Um but overall, like I say, to come in at, at, at halftime at nil-nil was probably a relief for us and a frustration for them. Um, I do just actually want to raise one more thing, which I forgot to put in our notes, so I apologise. Um, but what did you think of the protest at the start? I say this because um, at the start of the game, obviously one of the Czech players has been accused of racism towards a Rangers player. The Czechs didn't take the knee at the start of the game. They did, however, choose to point at their respect logo on their sleeve. Um, I posted on Twitter afterwards, and I did get a, a, a broad range of, uh, of of comments back, is that I, I think it's unfair to say that they didn't kneel and they were actively avoiding their protest. Um, as, and some people were suggesting, like, oh, shocker, which I thought was a bit unfair because they did choose to protest. I'm not defending that I think what they did was appropriate, more that they did protest. They just did it in a different way. And I think we have to respect that. You look at um, Zaha, for example, at, uh, at Crystal Palace. He's refusing to take the knee anymore because he believes it doesn't affect anything um, and doesn't have an impact. So he's choosing to do his uh, protest in a different way, which is my, my point, I guess, is about them, is that the Czech players were trying to do their protest in a different way. I don't agree with it. Or the whole situation, but I was just I- intrigued in what you thought about that, considering the circumstances. Um, I think that how, when, and in what form any individual protest should be for that individual. I think it's difficult then when you have a um, a kind of organized protest in this sense because it can end up seeming tokenistic. Yeah. I do think it's important that it happens because it you you just have to keep this front and center as an issue. And I think it's important that it doesn't it doesn't stop having that kind of statement moment at the start of a game. I do feel that's important. I think it's I think it's up to the Czech players how they choose to do that. I think it would be, I would have been concerned if, for example, the Welsh players had chosen to take the knee or protest in whatever way they wanted and the Czech players had just stood there and kind of, you know, passively. Yeah. But 
but they did they did as you say point to the respect badge on the uh, respect uh, flash on their on their arms um so they weren't ignoring the moment i do think there are cultural differences as well i think the um i know one of your tweets got a response from someone who mentioned that culturally f- forcing I, i'm not saying that's what was happening but forcing someone to to kneel in the culture in in the Czech Republic is not, it's, it's a very, um, I presume it goes back to the old Soviet days that it's, you know, it's this kind of visualization of suppression. Um, so I think we have to be mindful of things like that, that it's what seems culturally normal and acceptable to us doesn't necessarily seem culturally normal, and acceptable to other people. Yeah. And I think we have to be careful that we don't make assumptions around that as well. No, I, I totally agree. And I, I, you know, and just for the sake of clarity, I wasn't kind of, washing over what their player had done uh, it was more the the situation uh, and how they kind of chose to do their protest i think ultimately like you say there's a lot of exceptions i know fin- in finland there is a thing about kneeling as well um which is why some of the formula one drivers haven't knelt before the the, the anthems uh, and before the protest before the anthem sorry when they when they are doing a, a protest at the moment about race in formula one so I think there are those things to bear in mind and I equally think that as long as they are doing some form of protest, I think that's also fine. I think the suggestions that they were just like, oh, bloody hell, typical checks, I think is wrong. I'm not condoning what allegedly happened with the with the Czech player whose name I can't remember now, but... I, I, Kudela. Thank you. Um, I, don't, I don't think I'm not condoning that because obviously what he said is at 100% wrong or what, again, what he's allegedly said is 100% wrong. And obviously that needs to be stamped down upon. And, you know, the the, the circumstance in the week between uh, obviously what happened to Rabbi Matondo and Ben Cabango, again, just awful, awful circumstances. And I can see I can see Ruth Nod in there. You know, these things shouldn't happen. But I also don't think it's right to kind of say the way we are doing this is right and the way you're doing this is wrong. I, I also don't think that's fair. Um, I also just wanted to mention whilst we're on this, the the abuse that Connor Roberts got in the week. We will get on to the to the red cards, but again, he's getting a lot of abuse. So much so that his girlfriend, as well, like she was getting abuse. She had to close her Twitter account down to avoid all the abuse. A lot of kind of it seems to be, and I'm not pigeonholing all Cardiff or Swansea or whatever fans, but it seems to be like a bit of a, a slight reemergence of a of a club rivalry situation where. Cardiff fans, some Cardiff fans giving him abuse and, and I'm sure it wasn't just some Cardiff fans um, I'm sure it's fans of other clubs I'm sure it's fans of you know, Swansea as well but I, I think this sort of reaction to to a football match is, it really really needs to stop and, and I cannot for the life of me I tweeted after the match, I cannot for the life of me understand what you think you're going to gain or how this is going to improve the performance of the player by you sending them vile abuse even take the how they feel out of it just what you think you're going to gain like Connor Roberts is going to think oh, I can't bloody wait to play for Wales again now like what are you trying to achieve it, it the stupidity of it blows my mind and people who do it and if you're listening you're not a Wales fan <laughs> people who do this aren't Wales fans just please stop listening to us and unfollow us it's it's so unacceptable and the same obviously goes for the race issues around Rabbi Matondo and Benka Bango, it is just completely unacceptable and there's something needs to needs to be done to stop this because it's just getting way out of hand. I mean I don't I don't know 
what else to say because this is just so painful that anybody who is working hard to represent us well and then gets treated this way and yes he may yes everybody makes mistakes in the game but this these responses are so wrong so fundamentally not what playing football is about not what being a human being is about yeah. it's just it's just wrong yeah it's staggering and just wholly unnecessary and again reiterate on every level it needs to stop um to go back to the match, obviously we're talking about Connor Roberts. There, he did he did get sent off. We won't, we will come to um, Schick first. I thought this was a, a great example, if there is such a thing, of Wales being nasty at the right times. It was a, quite a physical and kind of combative game, I thought. And I thought that we kind of riled them and ruffled them a little bit, and that frustration came out. And he did take a, a fair few swings. And obviously that is why Schick has ended up getting sent off. It changed the complexion of the game. We'll come to that. But for me, it was a, it was a correct decision. And I, and I don't know what you think. I agree. I mean, I think the ref had already decided he was giving them each a yellow from, from the, the, the initial kind of hullabaloo between the two of them. But then as soon as Schick raised his hand, his became a red. Yeah. Um, I think Roberts maybe does go down a little bit easily. Oh, yeah. I um, think he does, yeah. But I think that, unfortunately, is another sign of the times. Um, but I, I think both of those decisions were the correct decisions, actually. Yeah. I, I, I think it would have been just two yellows until Chick raised his hand. Yeah, I agree. Roberts does kind of go down a little bit easily. And I think at the moment, the way football is, then that's his that's probably the right thing to do if there is such a thing in that sense. I think he kind of has to go down to get the decision. Um, so I don't I don't kind of blame him for that. I think from there on, the game kind of changed and opened up a bit. We were able to go a little bit more aggressive uh, with the ball and how we set up. Obviously, we made the sub soon afterwards. Um, and obviously, that's where I, that was the first time in the game where I thought we began to take command of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, bringing more on and, and going two at the back. Obviously, playing against 10 men, it was a fairly obvious decision, but yeah. we our, our whole shape just looked better at that point. Yeah, and I think we started to play better football. I think everything mm-hmm. started to click a bit more, and it wasn't just because more came on. I think the shape changed, like you said there, yeah. and I think that kind of dominated things. And then, of course... Connor Roberts gets sent off and then the change of shape, shape all of a sudden you just think oh my god what do we do now and you know whilst I was critical at the start of this talking about how we set up I do think how we managed that situation afterwards I thought was excellent in, in how we retained our or regathered our shape I should say um, and how we were still able to kind of press and control the open spaces and, and try and be a bit more effective uh, going forward um, what did you think of Connor's second yellow because I was under the impression it was a straight red at the time and I still I, I, it looks like I'm wrong but I was under the impression it looked like a straight red at the time which I thought was very harsh I actually think it's harsh just for a second yellow to be honest um, very soon after Ampadu fouls uh, gives away a free kick for a heavy tackle which seemed much worse and it yeah. doesn't even get a yellow card for that so I do think I do think Connor Roberts was unfortunate with that particular second yellow. Um, obviously, you're walking a bit of a tightrope once you've got one yellow. And, you know, maybe, maybe the referee was just like, I've just had enough here. Um, but 
there were some inconsistencies on what did and didn't get yellow cards. Yeah, um, I agree. I mean, when so you look I think, at it, oh, I think sorry. that was the sorry, sorry, Dave. I think that was my biggest takeaway from that. I thought Roberts was unfortunate with the second yellow. No, I would agree with that, and I don't know. It's a difficult one because I think. In the circumstance where the ref has already sent someone off, you do jump and lead with your elbow like that. And he did catch him. I think you're running that risk, aren't you? You're making the ref make a decision. I think just in a game of football where there were three yellow cards and four yellow cards, sorry, and two of them were for the same player, for for, for it for a game of football to have two red cards, it, it sounds like it was like a battle royale. Mm. And it wasn't like that at all. It was a combat, combative, physical, competitive game. And, you know, there were lots of niggles from both sides. But it certainly wasn't a... I don't know. It certainly wasn't a, a fisticuffs type game. It wasn't a dirty game, game was yeah, it? Exactly. In that sense, yeah. And I think the ref has kind of not helped himself there. I think he, he did the right thing to send Schick off. And then I think perhaps he's kind of got in his own head a little bit. And he's thinking like, oh, have I done the right thing? Have I done the right thing? There, and he's seen an opportunity to do that for Robert. And he has elbowed him. He has caught him. He has already booked him for a similar sort of thing, in a way, at the other end. So, But is it enough to send him off? I uh, not not for me, but I will say that I can see why, not that I agree with it, but I can see why the ref has done that in that instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you, any raising of the arm these days, you, you run the risk of getting a card, don't you? Just, that seemed a borderline, yeah. borderline one for me, yeah. So obviously from there, I think like we've just mentioned there, we started to play a lot better football. We started to retain the ball a lot better. We, tr- we started to exploit the spaces a lot better. And I think a lot of that was because of more um, coming on. And then, of course, the smallest player on the pitch uh, scores a massive header. <laughs> I, I actually want to, just wanted to mention that I thought we, we held it together after going down to 10 men really well. I, I think it would have been easy... And I think historically at that point, there's a lot of games where we would have just shrugged our shoulders and just thought it's not our night. You know, it's not it's not going to happen for us and, and perhaps let the let the game peter away from us. But I I really think one of the strengths we have developed later is this resilience to go deep into games and, and get positive outcomes in games, even late. And that determination was really clear, even when we went down to to 10 men. Um, talking about the goal, I mean, what a cross or <laughs> a header. I, I love the fact that, um, well, it's so unexpected, which is, which is great. I think, uh, it, you can see Bale, you can see him like almost second guessing about whether he's going to cross it, isn't yeah. it? He waits, he waits, he realizes that if he's going to cross it, it's only going to go to Daniel James and he just nails it i mean you say what you want about gareth bale he can do that sort of thing that so few other players can do and you know again he was you know he had a relatively quiet night not all his fault um but when you really need him he can produce a cross like that to the smallest player on the pitch that no one else on our team or on our squad in fact is capable of doing i don't think um, what a ball. I mean, I will also say, from Dan James's perspective, that is a really hard header because you've got to time your jump well, obviously, but then you've also got to assume and wait that the player is going to miss the ball. 
So not only have you got to do that, you're probably seeing the ball and kind of planning the trajectory of the ball fairly late. So to kind of react to all of those things and then head it down into the ground past the keeper, it was an absolutely brilliant header. Yeah, I think... Well, they all just came together wonderfully, did they? Because you, th- you think about the positioning of that cross for someone of Dan James's height to get the elevation that he did and then to be able to direct it with the force he did. You're probably looking at about a three or four inch window yeah. that that ball's got to go into for that to work. And so for them both to get it so perfectly, it was, it, it was, it was just executed wonderfully. Yeah, it was outstanding. And I think we did kind of start to panic a little bit like what do we do now how do we hold on to this and it was a, oh it was a nerve-wracking uh, few minutes let's that, not let's that not was lie. A, that last 10 minutes was hard work oh my god <laughs> I, i've got when we scored i was texting uh football chris who's got a mention for the last few pods now actually um <laughs> i was texting football chris and obviously afterwards i st- kind of went crazy when we scored and uh, he had been texting me saying oh if you win this this is the sign that we should have, we should meet up and have Christmas in Qatar. Uh, and then about five minutes later, obviously scored. And Joy, my wife, was in bed, so I started running into, like running around the house, going crazy, uh, and running into into the bedroom where she was trying to sleep. Bless her, started singing Christmas in Qatar, Christmas <laughs> in Qatar, um, which she didn't find as funny as I did. But um, yeah, so the long and short of it is, we're going to uh, Christmas. Uh, we're going to Qatar for Christmas. So if anyone else wants to come, please uh, please let us know. We'll meet up. Um, yeah, it was an amazing last 10 minutes in the sense that it was, I think it was what I love about watching international football because everything is on the line, isn't it? And yeah. if we'd have ended up with a point from those first two games, I know, you know, everyone was saying the right things beforehand, but the reality side of that is that's a really disappointing return, even though they are two tough games. So to come out with it with three points, um, it was vital. And I think that's what you want in your international football matches isn't it it wasn't necessarily a a thrilling contest to watch but in terms of the drama and the excitement and the ups and the downs of it 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 kind of had everything in a lot of ways and obviously there's two kind of standout moments the one of them is the is the gareth bale thing which i would just i think i I was quite drunk at the time i think i I think i tweeted oh my god gareth bale double fist pump him a throw and turns me on um (laughs) which i ever so slightly regretted in the morning but i uh i I stand by it and then of course i'll I'll let you do the honors and talk about joe roden i think well his and ampadu's reaction to that clearance just sum it up don't they? They're... I think Dan James in his post-game press conference said it, although no, perhaps it was Rob Page said, you know, it's as, it's as good as a goal. And obviously yeah. it, is, it is as good as a goal and as vital as a goal. Uh, but he, Rodden in particular, is, and we've said, we've said it every time we watch him play, but he is developing so well. And when you consider how little actual game time he's had over the last six months or so to see the progression that he's still demonstrating game in, game out when he runs out for us, it, I mean, you can't help but be confident of, of, of what he can bring bring to the team. And I, I think the way they were all throwing their bodies on the line at the end, Nico ending up in the back of the, yeah. <laughs> the, back of the goal, and, you know, it Love was... That. Yeah, as you say, Bale celebrating the 
the throw in as much as he celebrated the goal yeah. you know it was just it was just wonderful to see wonderful to see yeah I'm and exactly sorry. as we were saying before exactly the sort of game uh previously that that would have petered out and yeah. um and ended up you know perhaps in a nil nil for us or or worse and i think just the fact that we dug it out and kept going and were so so committed I, I do think we've. De- there are things where I feel we're not developing, but that side of the game, I do think we're, feel- we're developing. I think there's two elements to that, aren't there? I, before I, I move on, the, the the Rodden thing for me. Obviously, I watched the Newcastle game yesterday, and he. I thought Rodden was absolutely fantastic. His reading of the game is so good because the Spurs midfield yesterday basically didn't really do anything. So he was playing centre half and centre mid. He. I thought he was excellent yesterday and. Um, I thought I think his reading of the game is so good, and you can see that the the way he reads, right? I'm not going to be able to close the man down now. You can see him take a step, realize he's not going to get to the ball, so just hurls himself to the ground to read the block. That that is exceptional defended. Like that is outrageously good, and the kind of on the knees screaming into the ground, double fist celebration, and then Amber do like dragging him up, slapping him in the face and telling him to get on with it. Like the whole thing. I was just like, this is amazing. Um and obviously all of those things go for you and you end up you end up winning the game. And it was and it was a fantastic, fantastic win. And I think there was one thing I was I was gonna I was thinking about saying as the as the game was going on, you kind of pre rehearse a little bit perhaps in your mind how you think this is going to play out. And I was kind of reminded a little bit of Newcastle last season under Steve Bruce and I apologise I'm going somewhere with this where you felt after a while whilst Wales uh, whilst Newcastle were getting results the the luck of the you know pe- lucky penalties and lucky one nils and c- shots being cleared off the line and lucky VAR decisions eventually all of that luck will run out and you're left with a you know with a bit of a crappy situation and that for example is now why Newcastle are one place above the relegation zone in a crappy situation. And I was thinking about that that as a relative comparison, but the difference is is that none of the things that we've achieved, I don't think, is luck. I think a lot of international teams get to the last 10 minutes and at that point, at that time, think, do you know what? We'll take the draw. We don't want to lose this game. And I think at that point, we almost do the opposite where we think, right, we've got 10 minutes left to win this game and I think the the difference between the two and I do, stu- I do still maintain that I do think there's an element sometimes that you know we do need to do these things a little bit earlier if nothing else for my heart rate but I think the the fundamental issues of how our mindset has changed is instead of going into those last 10 games and that's why we used to lose them in the past Instead of grinding out a nil-nil there, we'd lose that one nil because we'd go into the last 10 minutes thinking, we'll take a point here. And then that's where things go wrong. Whereas we go the other way now. And again, I would probably look at the checks and they would probably think, right, we'll take a draw now. And then 10 minutes to go, we score and that's that's that, that game over and everything changes. So I think a massive amount of credit has to go to the players there for the way they approach these things, for their, their outlook and attitude towards things. Because to keep doing this isn't luck is it it's 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 attention to detail it's commitment it's having the the passion and energy and drive and everything to make sure that you create you're the team who create the one more chance do you know yeah i mean i think that's the difference i think that's where we've come 
forward developmentally is um, being prepared to take a game by the scruff of the neck neck in the last 10 to 15 minutes and force our will on it uh, and I, I think that historically we, we can think of occasions where that would have petered out to a nil-nil or, or worse and I think the fact that we've got this resilience and strength of character now to, and, and sort of self-confidence to back ourselves in those positions, I think that's a huge step forward. Yeah. We're not playing the odds. We're backing ourselves at that point. And I think that's great. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, to look at the, the bigger picture of the situation, there's a couple of things I've just realised we are 40 minutes in, so I know we are. We're doing okay time-wise, but not great. <laughs> um, the the big thing really, I guess, is six wins when you win the group. It's, 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 really, it's, it's really as simple <laughs> as that, I suppose. <laughs> Um, I mean, ultimately, are you happy with what we've come out of those two games with? I remain a bit frustrated by the Belgium game. I, I don't think the result was unexpected per se, but I just I don't think we showed well in that game. Um, overall, I think if we'd have gone into the window, we probably would have accepted we're not going to beat Belgium away. Um, and we had to take three points from the Czechs, and that's what we did. And we had a good performance against Mexico as well. I don't think that should be lost, because I think the impact for the squad of that game is important as well, looking ahead to June. So overall, I think it was a positive a positive window, when you can, particularly when you consider who we were missing. Um, and hopefully, a bit concerned about Joe Allen, um, but hope, hopefully those injuries are going to sort themselves out in not too not too long a time scale. Uh, David Brooks is, I know there was some nice pictures of him training with, with Bournemouth over, over the break and looking very smooth and, and easy on his feet, which is a, it's a nice sign. You, he's almost got forgotten in the, in the time that he's been away. So I think there's, a, you know, there's a lot of positives to take and a lot to look forward to in the, in the summer. We've in the last 15 games, we've won nine. We've only lost to Belgium and England um, Very good. You know, we've scored fifteen, ten clean sheets. You know, it's yeah. you, it's not it's not you can't you can't complain about that as a as a kind of um, precursor to going into the Euros. I, I think I think that's all right actually. <laughs> ten clean sheets in fifteen is is a, is a superb start, and nine wins from that. I think that's really impressive. Um, I think uh, from if you'd have offered me the three points at the start. I think I would have taken it. I think you're right. There's a frustration that we could have got something from Belgium, but we didn't. And I, uh, but I'm not that bothered because I do think, having played that game, it shows that they are beatable. And I do think the Czechs have half a chance of getting something off them in Belgium. And I do think they have. They're slightly just past their peak, and I think they're just on the way down. They've got a, an old defence, and I mentioned that in the pre-game. The thing I wrote for Gamer Willard and uh, and obviously in our pre-game pod, I thought that their ageing defence is what gave us a chance. Um, and I think that proved to be the case. And I think there is definitely something there, as the Czech showed, if we're willing to kind of play a bit higher up the pitch. Um, the Mexico game, I thought, we talked about that and I was thinking about it after. Yes, I think getting a, a win for Gunter's 100th cap was a big part of that. But I'm 99% sure the ultimate reason that the players were as committed as they were is that I think there was 
a, probably a, a chance for a lot of our players there where we where they were told this is it like if you want to go to the Euros this is your chance to to make that th- 23 show us what you can do and I think that's why we got that kind of a level of commitment and that and and a, and, a, a di- and a different performance out of that and obviously the the win against the Czechs you can't complain we, you know we won a game we probably would have drawn or lost not so long ago and it was a proper gritty performance which I loved so overall I think we can't not be happy um I just wanted to mention the the injuries there and Joe Allen obviously Ramsey played 20 minutes for Juve this weekend which is a little bit frustration I got I saw a lot of crazy things on Twitter like people saying like should he even be in the squad which blew my mind um I think well I'll come to you first because I, I've just talked for a lot there but um are you that concerned about him playing for UV, having not played for us? I, th- I think it's a non-story, frankly. I think we, you have to accept that there are timelines to these things. Yeah. Um, our game was on Tuesday. Their game was on Saturday. Am I right? Saturday. Yeah. And he played. Tw- he played twenty minutes. Um, I looked up actually because there was a kind of reverse situation with this with Bale back in as leading up to the qualification for the Euros. So it would have been November 19 um, where he hadn't played for Madrid, but came and played for us. And I'm I'm actually going to read his quote because I think I think it's relevant for Ramsey's situation. So Bale said, if there had been a Real Madrid game this week, I would have been fit and training to play. Maybe for them it doesn't look great, but it's just a kind of coincidence that the national team game comes around this week. I just think it's exactly the same situation for Ramsey. It's just the, t- the two games are reversed in their order. I don't think that we as supporters can celebrate the fact that the timing worked right for Bale at that point yeah. as a Wales fan and didn't work for Madrid and then get churlish about the reverse situation happening for Ramsey and Juve. I just, I just think it's a non, it just doesn't make sense to me as a, as something to even be concerned about. It's one of those things. It's all it is. I think the addition to that for me is that I think if you look at Joe Allen, I think Aaron Ramsey is very aware that he needs to manage his body and how he does things. And I think to an extent, it's not as bad as Bale, I don't think, but I think he has the same kind of concerns. He knows how he needs to manage himself. And he's in an incredibly competitive situation in Juve, at Juve, sorry. And I don't for a moment think he made actively made the decision to not come. But I think the flip of that is true where Joe Allen was probably allowed to make the decision whether he came and he did come and he did get injured 10 minutes into the match and apparently it's a hamstring and a a knee strain as well which is massively concerning. Stoke have said that they don't think he'll play for the rest of the season or it's a battle to play again before the end of the season. So I, I do think it, the flip side of that is also true, that if, if, if we don't manage these situations properly, and I don't think it's anyone's fault, I think it's one of those things with Joe Allen, but it just does go to show that if you don't handle these things properly or you have a gamble in certain circumstances, it can backfire. And I think the reverse of this is, would Ramsey have affected the Belgian result? Possibly. Did it, Would he affect the Czech result? No, because we won. So... We are looking at him now, potentially having a bit of time to recover. And then by the time June comes around, which is not very far away, he's in better condition. We've arguably got a better 
situation uh, with Juve. So I, I just think, like you say, not only is it not a story particularly, I also think there's a real lack of, of common sense for anyone who thinks that Aaron Ramsey shouldn't be going to the Euros. Yeah, no, it's just, it's, yeah. That's, can we just shelve this one? Because it's yeah. just silly. It's just silly. Um, the, the last one, and I do want to have a relative uh yes or no for us because I do want to show off about one thing because this never happens but yes or no I'll give you a sentence because yes or no is a bit harsh yes or no <laughs> um, should Paige take us to the Euro? I mean assuming that the, the, the question is framed on the basis that Giggs isn't for one reason or another isn't taking us to the Euros then yes absolutely it's got to be Paige um, I, I, there's, there's no uh, there is no sense in doing anything different right now. He's obviously respected by the team. That, that there's a level of integration that's necessary for someone to take us to the tournament. I just, I, I, I don't see what else it can be, uh, but Rob Page. Yeah, I agree. I think obviously, the, the, I would even say at this point, the gig situation aside, I would, I would take him. There is a knock-on with whether Stoivenberg, what the impl- implication is for him. But I think that we're getting into a lot of ifs, buts, and maybes there. So for me, I, I totally agree. If, if he, and I was skeptical before, but I think he, the way he's handled this situation has been great. So I think for me, he's got to, he's got to take us forward. Um, what I've just lost my place. Um, yeah, um, Ian Johnson has asked us on Twitter. Go on. Can we do, can we talk briefly, Dave, about the situation with uh, the three players that were excluded? Yeah. Because there's, there's aspects of that that just don't sit right with me. Um, I mean, obviously, we don't know what we don't know the details of what they did, and the closest we've had to any kind of explanation was was Tyler Roberts for uh, apologising that he was, I forget the phrase, but it was up and around in the hotel um then other people have made it sound like it was a more obvious kind of covid safety breach so so we don't know the circumstances and that's you know that's how it should be in some respects um but i i i am concerned about the kind of tlc of some with some of the players particularly some of the younger players um Cabango and Matondo had taken some horrible racial abuse after the Mexico game. And I think, and this might be me as a mum. I mean, I'm a mum of a 20-year-old. So, you know, I'm I, I could probably, probably looking at it to these particular spectacles. But um, I think if, if, if I, as a, yeah, if I as a mum had a kid who was in someone's care had done what he needed to do as a player, had taken racial abuse and then had been pushed out by that care team, I think I would be asking questions about whether those people are actually looking after him properly. And I think it's reasonable for us to look at the big picture of how we're taking care of some of these younger players. Bale, in his interview, for example, after Cabango and Matondo had had the abuse, said that they, as in Cabango and Matondo, know where we are and we're there if they want to speak to us. I don't think that's proactive enough. And I'm not saying it's Bale's fault. It's not his responsibility. But I think I think it needs to be more proactive than that. I think if you've got players un, who are getting that kind of level of abuse, 
you should be actively approaching them and actively supporting them, not just saying, oh, the door's open. You know, and I do worry a little bit about how young some of these players are and how we're looking after them. I do disagree with you, i got to say, because I was kind of with you at one point, um, (laughs) because we talked about this in the week, obviously. Um, I I think the Bale thing, just quickly on that, I I agree with this. I I don't think he's said anything wrong there. I think the way he went when he referred to as the doors open, I think he meant the other players will talk to him about it if he wants to. I don't think he was saying meant that as the whole um, organisation. But, I mean, I, I could be wrong. I think there's two parts of it for me. Joy, my wife, said, if this was that guy you don't like, we, who we all know is, is Tom Lawrence, <laughs> she, she said, if Tom Lawrence had done this, you would have been saying, throw away the key, good riddance, you've had your last chance, blah, 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 blah. Because it's Hal, I'm saying, oh, yeah, but it's all right. You know, we only went to bed late. It doesn't matter. And I, you know, so I do think part of it, I do think that a lot of our reaction is geared towards the fact that we love Hal and there's a lot of people who are supporters of Tyler Roberts and Rabbi as well. I do think that does play a part in, 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 in one way that we kind of look at the situation. I think the other thing is A, we don't know what they did and they may just be wanting to say they were up late to put a lid on this so that it doesn't become a big deal. So until we know what they did, I, I don't feel it's fair to kind of make a judgment. And the second thing is we also don't know what support they are being given after the fact. If they've just been booted out and no one's speaking to them anymore, then I think that's wrong. I think if we've kicked them out and we're in touch with them and we're trying to help them through it and this is what you've got to do to improve in the future to get back in the squad, then I think then it's fine. I equally think that if you know, Rob Page said afterwards that the line's been drawn under it, the lads are under consideration mm-hmm. for the next camp. And if that's the case and they get picked because they're playing well and whatever, then I think it's fine. Because ultimately, I, in the same way that the Ramsey thing is a non-story, the more I've thought about it, the more I think this is a non-story. I agree with you about Rabbi Matondo. I do think he could have been handled differently in that circumstance. And I do maintain that we don't know if they are giving him any support or he's been referred to his club's HR liaison officer or whatever because of the circumstances because we can't offer that ongoing support because he's gone back to his club now so I do think there are a lot of unknowns which make it difficult I think at the end of the day and I think we said this before I don't like the fact that they have a bedtime if that's what the situation comes down to I think that's wholly unnecessary by the same token if you break the rules and and then there should be a consequence. Now, whether the consequence is, is fair in relation to what they've done, I think is, again, is a story for another day. But I do think that if someone has said in advance, look, lads, this is the bedtime because of the COVID restrictions or whatever, if you, you know, break the COVID protocols, that you know, dally with things, try and get away with stuff, the consequences, we're going to have to kick you from the camp, then I don't think there can be any complaints. I think we've got to, at some point, trust the people who are there making these decisions that they've made the right decision for the best interests of the team the players everyone involved and getting a result which obviously in real life the Rabi Matondo and and Kabango abuse that is obviously the most important thing that they get support but from a football perspective the most important thing was we won that second game and we did so uh, I for me I don't think this is actually as big a deal so long as there is support being given to those players outside of the Wales bubble. 
I agree. I think that's the key, that's the key issue, isn't it? You want. I think that's where my concerns lie. In the at a time where I would like to see those players getting support, it didn't sit right with me that they were pushed out of the squad. Admittedly, we don't have enough information to know what that means, or or as you say, what they did that precipitated them being pushed out of the squad. But I think it just, like I said, it didn't sit right with me at a time when we should be looking to support players that we we were sending them away. Yeah, I, I like on that aspect, I can't disagree. I, I, I just feel like until we know everything, mm-hmm. we, we can't... No, that's a, that's I, a fair I comment. think it's, a, it's an unfair comment. thing for us to do. Um, so we do want to kind of move things on a little bit. However, I do want to raise the question. We've been asked by Ian Johnson on Twitter. Um, do we think that having the fans in the autumn will have a big impact? Hopefully, obviously, that will have an impact for the women because they start their games in September. But obviously, the men have their qualifiers as well. How big an impact do you think that will have in a, in a, in a positive or negative way for, for both the Wales teams? I think for, I think for us, it's a, pos- it's a positive. You can, you can look at situations where um, I think there are some teams where... The absence of France might not necessarily always be such a hindrance. Like, for example, dare I say Newcastle at the minute? I can't imagine that it would be helpful. I feel like every time have, Steve Bruce sees a spike a, in COVID number, he's, he's like fist pumping the air, like, get in, less chance of fans. Um, but I think generally speaking for us, it's obviously a positive. Uh, there's, it, it's clear that the fans can impact what happen, what happens in the games. You, you know, you think about Belgium at home, the Austria game, you know, there's there's lots of situations where the crowd and the singing and the energy has been has been a twelfth man. And so I, I think it will it will be um, it will obviously be a plus for us going forward, I think. But then you've also got the counter of that. It means there'll be home crowds at the away games. Yeah. Um, so you know it, there's swings and roundabouts in, in in that sense, but I think um, I think the psychology of moving towards something that just feels more normal is kind of important as well. Hopefully, the, the, it also means that the camps will be a little more uh, sort of open and and less structured for the players as yeah. well. So that you know the whole the whole process is just a little bit more. Um, like user friendly, I suppose. I'm trying <laughs> to give a better a better word. Um, so, so I think the, the introduction of the crowd will will hopefully will just make it a more pleasant experience for the players too. I think I think that will be a plus as well. I think for the for the women's team particularly, I think they were on such a high in terms of the the rise in attendance numbers mm-hmm. um, and the general support that they were getting that I feel like the more that of that that can continue to happen is a bigger bonus to them almost than the men's team because I think that continued rise in in kind of uh, awareness and how kind of in the public eye they are I think is really really important and I think. The FAW obviously have invested a lot of time and money into into the situation, especially looking at Gemma Granger getting the job now. So I think for that kind of rise in investment and everything to keep going, I think they need those crowds in. They need to keep generating support. And I think, and I'm sure they will do that, but I think that's almost a bigger bonus to the men, uh, to the women, sorry, than the men. Um, to look at the women's games ahead, thank you for the question, by the way, Ian Johnson. Um, if anyone wants to send us any questions, please do. Um, 
we have uh, Canada on Friday coming up and the Denmark team following that for the Wales women, which is Gemma Granger's first two games in charge. Um, 2783 Greg, which uh, is a catchy name, uh, asks us on Twitter, what do we think of the appointment? Uh, very positive. I mean, she comes with um, a very significant international experience with the with the England setup, right from the sort of under sixteens all the way up to involvement with the seniors. Bit of club time as well with Leeds and Middlesbrough. So overall, it's a very impressive CV. I know there's been a bit of talk about whether we're just a sort of building block in her in her career and I actually have no objection to that at all because it's all the more reason for her to make it a success if she's viewing this as a way to go on to you know something that might be deemed bigger and better I hate I hate putting us in that framework but let's you know let's let's say she's a you know uh, a very ambitious lady I don't I don't think there's an I haven't got an issue with that at all if if it means that she serves as well while she's appointed with us. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to work in, obviously, the English setup for 11 years, she's worked across a, a lot of the, uh, the teams as well as working with Mark Sampson, I think it was, uh, in the senior side. She's obviously contributed to a lot of tournaments, so she's aware how that works. She's had club roles, as you mentioned. I think there's so many positives about her appointment. I mean, I hadn't known much about her before the whole thing. Uh, before she did get appointed, but having kind of looked into some, some information about her and, and seen what other people have said about her, it's a very positive appointment. Um, I was very lucky to go to the her first press conference online uh, this week, which was really fascinating, actually, an eye-opening experience. I wanted to ask a question, frankly, got a little bit terrified, so I did bottle out of it in the end. But um, it was really interesting, actually, to see the way she spoke, and I've written a, a, an article for Welsh football fans about the, the whole thing and, and how I felt like she didn't waste a word. Everything was kind of aimed towards the players. I feel like she wasn't actually talking to the press. She was talking to the players and we just happened to be the ones in the room, um, uh, which was really, really fascinating. And I thought the way she delivered messages in regards to players opening up in terms of style of play, in terms of the Welsh way, she kind of hit a lot of nails on the head, especially talking about singing the anthem uh, and, and kind of having an interest more than a passing interest, in fact, in learning Welsh and how to say things and kind of how she expected to get some banter from the players about that. I think she really spoke excellently and, 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 and kind of ticked a lot of boxes for the fans. Um, I thought the, the way she talked about the Wales way and how we have got to grind out wins against teams that we shouldn't beat, but we, we do what we do, and, and how we can be more front foot against teams that we should expect to beat, I thought was really, really interesting. And I think the difference for Chris Coleman was he got those players to play, play nasty almost and kind of grind out results where you don't deserve them. And I think that's what the women's team have been missing. And I think that she's keenly aware of that, the way she spoke about that. And I thought that the way she projected what she wanted to do to change those things and having that mindset was really interesting. Yeah, I think I, I was reading your article and I think it's actually really interesting observation about her uh, being so player focused with what with what she's doing. Um, I, I do think there's a kind of bigger question therefore about her role kind of leading women's football 
in Wales. But but for right now, I'm happy that her priorities are aimed at the squad and, and getting to grips with um, getting to grips with the 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 player resources that she has and understanding them and planning and planning for what will be two really important important games difficult opposition uh, so I'm I, I, I'm pleased to hear that she's obviously hit the ground running and I'm, I'm pleased to hear that I think my my only reservations at the moment would be about the bigger picture stuff around development of female football in Wales but I think it's early enough days at the moment I'm not gonna you know raise any red flags about that just yet. Uh, Ruth has written a, a great article which you'll be able to see at colemanhadadream.com about the, the kind of bigger picture stuff and how um, how how Gemma might fit into Jane Ludlow's shoes in, in what term, in what she did so well to kind of spread uh, in involvement in, in girls and women's football across Wales. So that's that was a really interesting read. So that'll be available for you um, today, which is Tuesday when you're listening to this, hopefully, on uh, on colemanhadadream.com. So please do, do give that a look. Um, we're going to talk just about the Canada game today uh, as that is Friday the Denmark game will be uh, after we next record so we will talk about that next time um I wanted to do kind of a, a brief preview about this and the one statistic um which we both talked about pre-game uh which really blew my mind and uh, I'll, I'll hand over to you for that one well, to say that the Canadians have got a little bit of experience is a <laughs> is an understatement. Um, I mean, headlining that, of course, is Christine Sinclair, who um, plays here in Oregon. Actually, she's one of uh, Portland Thorns strikers, so she's a, she's a little bit of a local celebrity here. Uh, but she is sitting on two hundred and ninety six caps. That is ridiculous. So, so basically, she's like three Chris Gunters. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's impossible. She's been playing international football for 21 years. And aside from all that, she's got 186 goals. So in 296 caps games, she's got 186 goals. The woman is a phenomena. Um, and I know you've been, you've been looking at these goal ratios a little bit. Well, I was kind of fascinated by that because obviously that's, you know, to all intents and purposes, that's three goals, uh, two goals, sorry, every three games, which at international level is kind of staggering. And you consider how often that America, uh, the Canadians, sorry, will play teams like America uh, and obviously how far they go in competitions. The, 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 they come up against a lot of top quality opposition. So to score that many goals, I, you know, I don't think I've ever scored that many goals at goal, never mind at international <laughs> football. So uh, unbelievable. The statistic that I, I came up with, and I'm going to pretend that we haven't had this conversation before. Um, can you have a guess, Ruth, in our 26-player <laughs> squad, uh, now Hayley Ladd has pulled out, uh, replaced by Chloe Williams, how many goals are in our squad at the moment? Well, I know it. I can't imagine it's 186. <laughs> Even with even with Helen Ward's forty three or forty three, I can't imagine we've made one hundred eighty six. So Helen Ward's got forty three. Jess Fishlock has got thirty, uh, with a few other smatterings here and there. That takes our total to in the twenty six. So not even the start in eleven. In the twenty six, we have one hundred and ten goals in our squad, and uh, and Christine has one hundred and eighty six international goals so she has 
an absurd amount of goals. So she's obviously the threat. I mean, you you would you you could probably make the argument that she is obviously older now. She's thirty seven. You know, the the level of threat is limited to an extent. But then you look at the other players who are around her. Janine Becky, seventy three caps, thirty one goals, playing for Manchester City. Um, Jordan Heitmer, uh, thirty three caps at the age of eighteen and scored thirteen goals for PSG. Uh, th- uh, thirteen goals for Canada whilst playing for PSG. Um, I mean, and that's just the strikers. I mean, Sophie Schmidt, two hundred and two caps in midfield, um, and she's still only thirty two. I mean, she's she's four years younger than me, almost to the day. In fact, uh, five years, no, four years. Yeah, four years younger than me, almost to the day. Now I've looked at my stats, and she has played two hundred and two times for Canada. Like the level of experience and quality they have in this team is frankly staggering. Yeah, I think, um, and the longevity that some of those players have—it's interesting, isn't it? They've got some really like time-served older players, and yet they're clearly finding space for these youngsters that, as you say, are eighteen, nineteen, and already have twenty, thirty. 30 caps so there's it's it's an amazing balance that that but that that they are achieving um it will be interesting to see how bev priestman forms up with the team she's she's uh been in place for about three or four months now i think and i'm guessing that Gemma granger and bev priestman know each other from their time with the english setup presumably um they play the Canadians played in the She Believes Cup down in Florida in in February, and I I think it's fair to say they had a kind of mixed mixed tournament. They beat Argentina, but it took a late a late goal, well into entry time for them to win that, um, and lost to Brazil and the, and the USA. And I think the Brazil defeat in particular will have hurt because they're they're on a par in the in the rankings. Um, so. They're on a learning curve as well. You know, they've got a new coach who's who's establishing herself and, and getting used to the used to the squad too. So I think I think it's it's actually a really interesting game from from both sides. Um, they go on to play England, so it will be interesting to see whether they're tempted to put out something that isn't quite their first eleven in this game. I, I'm not quite sure how they'll how they'll view that. I think what's interesting about them for me, and also obviously you mentioned the She Believes Cup there and the results there, I think they are at a stage where they are very much in transition. Some of their older players um, who have been left out this time, Diana Matheson, for example, um, I, I think it shows that they're a team in, in transition a little bit in certain areas. And I mean, if you look at the squad that are coming across... Whilst it's quite a big squad, it's also quite a young squad as well. I'm just looking through it. I want to double check my numbers. I think there's four players who are still playing college football. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that gives you an idea of the stage of the process that they're in as well uh, in terms of in terms of kind of bringing new players through. And maybe that will be, you know, part of the role that is going to be taken through by Bear Priestman in, in terms of making sure that those new players are in. I think you're right. I think they will look to the England game as being the bigger test and I think we will get a uh, I don't want to say a, a B team in that sense but I don't think it'll be their full strength but looking at the quality that they have throughout the squad even if those are you know there are some younger players you know we've got uh, Jesse Fleming playing for Chelsea um, 
you know, there's a real mix of, of players there, which I think is really, really interesting. And I think it will still be the challenge that, that, uh, that Gemma Granger wants. She talked a lot about testing ourselves against the bigger team. This is our bar. This is how we check how far we've progressed um, against these sort of teams. And I, and I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, clearly we need to, if we're going to step up, we've got to, we've got to start competing well against these higher ranked teams with reasonable uh, reasonable regularity. Uh, for, the, for the piece that you were you were mentioning that will go on our website, I was looking at our rankings and, and basically in the time that, that Jane Ludlow was in charge, our rankings haven't moved. Now, I think that there were so many other positives around our play and around uh, the the development of female football in Wales during her reign that, you know, her, her reign was certainly positive, but I did find it interesting that we hadn't actually progressed at least on paper in that, in that way. And so, and so clearly being able to, um, to, to beat, to compete with these higher ranked teams is one of the key, the key next kind of steps for us. I agree, and I think I think what's difficult there, like you mentioned, our ranking is that we're right now. I think at the top of the of the best of the rest. If you know what I mean, I think to mm-hmm. make those steps up, looking above us in the rankings, the almost all of them are European teams. So right above us, Portugal, Poland, Czech Republic, who we played and I think beat relatively recently. Finland, Ukraine, Russia are twenty third ahead of us. We beat them not long ago. Scotland, Austria, Switzerland, Belgium, Iceland, Denmark, Italy. Like then you're getting into the sort of teams from probably about, you know, Austria upwards who are who are a real different class of, of, mm-hmm. of opposition in terms of quality. So I think with you know, it's it's almost a bit misleading because I think the next step is now you know, it's a, it's a massive jump, I think, in terms of quality. Yeah, we might be able to sneak up to like 29th and there are teams around us who who we are capable of beating. But I think to really make that big jump up, we do have to beat these bigger teams, but we're at the phase where that is the hardest thing to do. I don't disagree with you. I think, I think um, rankings can be very misleading. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think they're... And I think particularly for the women's game, I don't, I don't think they necessarily really reflect where teams are. But um, I did find it, I think it was just an interesting observation from the research I was doing from, for the piece because it's not how you feel the six years she was in charge when yeah, six true. years in charge felt so much more positive than those raw numbers demonstrate. No, that's very true, and I and I do think the women's rankings are miscued. Uh, miscued mm-hmm. is that the right word? Uh, no, skewed is the word I'm looking for. I think to to jump up the rankings is a lot more difficult than it is um, for the men. For example, to kind of gain ranking points is is not easy. And like for example, I think we've got sixteen fifty nine and twenty third, twenty uh, ninth. Sorry, have sixteen seventy two. So to gain that many ranking points, just to move up to twenty ninth is like a six-month job relying mm-hmm. on other results go away and then the Czech Republic are 1689 so again that kind of the, those the steps there are quite big so I think that's that's worth worth taking into account on the rankings argument as well but I, I do totally take your point because it feels like we have come further than that um, but ultimately kind of fallen short and I think that's what Gemma Granger's target is you talked about there having the the target of 
qualifying and the four-year situation and her kind of looking at this as a stepping stone. And I think the only way it becomes a stepping stone is if she does qualify. And if that's the case, well, I'm fine with that because then the whole job becomes more... uh, appealing to other people if she does go afterwards so I don't see that as a negative at all well I do see it as a negative if she leaves or if she's rubbish but I don't think either of those things will happen um, so I think it's it's a, it's a really positive opportunity for, for everyone concerned and I think she's got a great group of players on her hands who are you know some senior players some exciting talented youngsters and, and some kind of experienced players who are in a, in a solid part of their career in their you know mid mid to late 20s and I think yeah, the squad is in a really promising position, so I think she's got a lot of uh, a lot of great foundations in place. Yes, I, I don't I don't disagree there. I think um, it's it's clear we're in a, a point where we can move forward. The question now is, we have to do it. Yeah, we have to, yeah. And I think these two games will be a, a great demonstration of 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 whether we can do that and, and and how she wants to do that. And that's what I'm kind of really excited to see on Friday. I am pretty sure that the games are on the iPlayer or the red button. Um, I'm not sure they are live on the TV, but I should have checked that beforehand. Um, so please do try and watch them. I just want to say a couple of quick things before we leave. A massive thank you to everyone who read our Game of Willard uh, International Football Magazine. It took us ages to put together our numbers on our website. Um, thanks to you guys having a read and having a look. Um, but also thanks to the amazing writers who've created a lot of great content to help us, uh, as well as Ollie Whitfield, who helped with the images, as did Owen Lacey. So thank you um, to everyone who's had a look at that. We really appreciate it. We'll be doing more around the June games, hopefully around the the women's qualifiers and uh, the the qualifying once the the pots and the draw is done. And obviously we'll be doing some specials for the Euros as well. So a massive thank you to everyone who kind of had a look at that. We we really appreciate it. And there's going to be more stuff coming from us at Coleman Had a Dream very, very soon. So do go and have a look at the articles on ColemanHadADream.com. Where we have a mailing list so that if you do like the Game of Lard magazine, that will ho- hopefully be pushed out to you soon, um, as well as a few other things. So please do sign up for the mailing list. Um, follow us on Twitter at Coleman's underscore dream and Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Coleman had a dream. I think I've done all the promos there, Ruth. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think you've ticked all the boxes. <laughs> um, anything else? No, no, just looking forward to Friday's game a lot. It's, it seems a long, long time since we've seen the girls. I mean, it's only November, but it's, it's, it feels a long time since we've seen the girls in action. So absolutely. looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to that. Uh, if anyone, any of the girls are listening, good luck. Uh, we look forward to watching the game and hopefully, uh, well, not hopefully, we will be doing a, a, some coverage of the Canada match as well as the Denmark match when those games happen. So again, thank you very much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. We appreciate it. And thank you for your time, Ruth. You're welcome. More more international football, always good. I know, what a treat. Uh, So thank you for your time, ladies and gents, and we will see you again soon. Goodbye. Bye-bye.